welcome to the Fight Lawyer Podcast, where we discuss combat sports and the law. Our guest today is the veteran voice of the octagon, Bruce Buffer. Bruce, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Now, let's talk about your background in sports a bit. Your grandfather was... Yeah, uh, my grandfather <clears throat> in the history books named Johnny Buff, and he was a bantamweight flyweight champion of boxing in 1921. Bert Sugar, the uh, boxing historian, actually stated that he was the greatest fighter of 1921. And you also trained in martial arts growing up, is that right? Yeah, my first start was judo at 12, and uh, then I moved on to... Um, when I moved from Philadelphia to Malibu, California, I became friends with some of Chuck Norris's uh, black belt students, and, and I started training under, his, under one of his key fighting partners in the art of uh, Tang Sudo, the Korean art that Chuck Norris studied in the Air Force. And I'm a second-degree black belt in that, and then um, due to my experience, as we all have, you know, fighting other than the dojo, shall we say, uh, I went into kickboxing because I wanted to train and fight for real and either knock somebody out or get knocked out and just do what I knew to be real from my own experiences in the real world of fighting. Now, at what point in your life did you first think of announcing worth, uh, work as a career path? Was it at a young age? No, not at all. Um, from my own, my very first company when I was 19 years old, I basically in the true definition of an entrepreneur, I've owned a number of different companies, worked in a number of different industries, and um, been very successful in some, and, and many actually, excuse me, very few uh, that did not work out, if only a couple, but you learn from your failures. You don't know what it's like to win unless you know what it's like to fail. It's just one of the key things of business life as well as life itself. And when I was uh, in my 30s, um, I started thinking about announcing. I actually thought about it when I was around 29 when I noticed a gentleman who became very popular on TV coming out and saying, let's get ready to rumble with this James Bond image when Tyson was getting big and everybody else in boxing during the late 80s. And long story cut short, it turned out to be Michael Buffer, who turned out to be my long-lost half-brother that I never grew up with. We wound up meeting. I wound up selling two companies that were very successful, but I wasn't passionate about them anymore. I was kind of burned out in what I was doing, even though I was making great money. I gave everything up to solely uh, um, become his manager and his business partner. And to trademark the phrase, the famous five-word phrase, let's get ready to rumble properly. And I just wanted to make him richer, more famous than he ever dreamed, and hopefully myself in the process. But we agreed I would not announce boxing. I said I wanted to be an announcer back then because I was so enamored of how great the job looked and does even look today. Um, but I said, that's okay, something will come along. And we all know what happened a few years later after that. And you mentioned Michael Buffer. He is your, your half-brother. How much of this is natural, do you think? How much of it is cultivated, and how much do you think of it comes from within? I think that the passion we both share for the fighting sports, speaking of myself in particular, the tremendous passion I share for the world of mixed martial arts and the UFC, being the voice of the octagon for 22 years now, um, it's a passionate role. And as far as the training or any talent, you know, anything went into it, Let's call it natural talent, if you will. Our dad was a um, Marine for 13 years, a drill instructor at Camp Pendleton, uh, taught hand-to-hand combat, you know, obviously commanded his voice very strongly to do what he did in his life at that time in his life. And I used to walk in a room when I was a kid, and I'd say, hi, Dad, and he would say, son, reject your voice. Let them know you're in the room. And both Michael and I will both tell you that our dad had the greatest voice of all of us. So... I think it's just a natural talent that just came out through doing what we love to do in our favorite sports. How did you first get involved with it for a living? 
I, again, managing my brother Michael in the early years, I started putting him in every other event outside of boxing, keeping the HBO boxing ring, shall we say, as his nucleus to build from. And when the UFC came on the scene, I was so enamored of the UFC that, you know, the spectacle that it was back then, not the sport of mixed martial arts that it became, but the spectacle, the, the blood sport, what style is the greatest style type thing, that I got Michael into the UFC announcing UFC uh, six, seven, and ultimate, ultimate. Um, but then I had to pull him because of our contract with WCW wrestling back then. He couldn't have continued and probably would never been able to continue at the pace that they grew at. And I convinced the UFC uh, to allow me to announce for them at an event in Bayamon, Puerto Rico in 1996. This is exactly 22 years ago this month. Um, and I had a fighter that I managed into the show so that I could go down to the event with him and convince the owner to let me get in the octagon. And that Basically, it's all about pursuing your dream and asking for what you want. And that's exactly what I did. And I got the shot. And they brought me back six months later to do a whole show by myself. Then they asked me to co-star on Friends, the NBC hit series uh, comedy, as myself on a show they did with the UFC. And it was at that filming of that show that I convinced the owner that I should be the announcer for every single UFC and help them build the brand and build the sport through my media contacts that I could bring to the table, but I needed to grow with them as an announcer. And that's basically it in a nutshell. I cover this in detail in my book, It's Time, which is sold out in the stores, but it's still available on Amazon. And it has a, a wide view of everything. Plus, I'll tell you about the fights that happen outside the octagon as well as inside amongst a, a plethora of other information. Now, Michael, again, does boxing events primarily. He also, as he mentioned, did some early UFCs. I've heard him say in interviews that the atmosphere at MMA events is so different because of that hardcore fan base that comprises an MMA crowd. Is that right? Well, it's right, but it also goes way beyond that. You know, that, that's a statement that could have been made. It's true today and very, very true as they were growing, but, you know, years ago. But when you go to a UFC, the demographic of the UFC is not just that demographic he's talking about that time the boxing fans as well love the ufc if you're a fight fan you realize the amazing talent and expertise of these female and male warriors as well as when you watch boxing you realize the skill of boxing but in the ufc and mixed martial arts you have to be an expert at every single legal form of fighting style known to man to survive in that octagon boxers will lose within a minute to two minutes unless they clock and knock out their opponent right away as a rule because they don't know how to defend against the other attacks that are going to come at them. I'm not saying that they can't win, but I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, the champion boxer will lose within the first round in the UFC, as well as the champion UFC mixed martial arts fighters we witnessed with Conor McGregor and Mayweather will lose in a boxing match, which is about two weapons and the Marcus of Queensbury rules. Each sport is to be respected as individual sports for the talent it takes to do each sport. So what I'm trying to say is that what has evolved from the hardcore fan that does go crazy, when I do UFCs, I see everybody from the 18 to 34-year-old female and male demographic, of which over 75% of males, 18 to 34, are fans of the UFC, which has been a proven fact years ago, according to Fox. Now you have the older demographic, which is love boxing, that is drawn into it because if you're a fight fan, you should, most people do respect and appreciate what they're watching as they appreciate and love the art of boxing. And how has the sport evolved over the past 20 some odd years that you've been involved in? What changes have you seen mostly? 
it went from spectacle to sport in the fact that we now have, when it first started, the rules were very few. The rounds were timeless. They could fight forever. And they used to fight three times a night in a tournament to become the winner. It, as, gladi as gladiatorial an event as you possibly can imagine. That's why the Octagon was created. It originally was designed by the famous director, John Milius, to have a moat around it with, with dangerous fish swimming in the moat and a bridge that they would cross into the Octagon. They threw that out just to create the octagon with the gladiatorial appeal of the Coliseum, let's say. And um, it was a spectacle back then, but then rules were in place, weight limits happened, rounds were established, and it became what we call the art, uh, a sport of mixed martial arts, roughly about six years after its actual inception. And then it just grew from there. And the new owners, Lorenzo Bertita and his brother Frank and Dana White, when they bought the show in 2000, um, they fine-tuned it even more, and it became the amazing, successful spectacle that it is. It's probably the fastest-growing and the most popular fighting event in the world, and I'm talking about in the world of boxing and the world of mixed martial arts. The UFC is like the NFL. It is a tremendous international brand. And over the years, how's your job changed? How have your commitments changed as the sport has evolved over these past 20-some-odd years? I've always been committed to the UFC from day one. I had the foresight in my own mind to realize this would be the biggest sport in the world, fighting sport in the world, which it is. Um, I had the pleasure of joining it back in the early stages at UFC 8, which was the first one I announced, UFC 6, which was the first one I attended. I saw the possibility for it, just like I saw the possibility for the phrase, let's get ready to rumble to become the biggest uh, most famous trademark, you know, in the world, which it still is today. Um, I'm happy to say my It's Time trademark is gaining a lot of ground also. But, you know, in business, you have to have foresight. And you have to follow that foresight with passion. And I did. And it did become the big item that I thought it would be. But again, it took fine tuning, fine management and fine marketing because it really was a tremendous spectacle. And they only thought they were going to have a few shows back in the beginning. But then... The rest is history and setting the records that it is. We play to sold out audiences all over the world. Your intro, the words, it's time, you mentioned a minute ago. Those words made their way out. Do you plan on coming up with a catchphrase? Did you kind of just wing it once or twice and it stuck? Very good question, my friend. Um, when my brother, the great Michael Buffer, the legendary, you know, most famous announcer of all time that brought the attention to the ring announcer was blaring his let's get ready to rumble phrase, whether it be in the boxing ring or as his, I'm his manager, as I said, and, and the multitude of other movies, TV shows, hockey, football, baseball, you name it. I've had Michael do it. He's done it himself. What happened is, is that I don't, I didn't want to be Frank Sinatra Jr. When I started announcing, I told myself that I would give myself a two to three year period to develop as an announcer, develop my own style, as most announcers back then copied my brother, I did not want to be that guy, or as I said, that Frank Sinatra Jr. type individual with all respect to him. So with that being said, I'm very physical. I move. I don't stand still as all announcers do with all respect and work on their voice. The most eloquent and best of all being Michael Buffer. I wanted to do and display my passion for what I do. And that's why if you ever see a UFC, I, do, I stand center when I start, I walk out, but I move. I sometimes am literally two feet away or more from the fighter's face as I'm roaring their name. And you don't catch that on TV, but it's, you see it live. 
I walk out every night proving to myself that I'm worthy of this job as I did last Saturday at the show that I was at. And when I came out, I have to prove to myself that I'm worthy of this job. So I've kept, I've been able to keep my passion level the same, if not growing more so for 22 years with that attitude. And that's the way I approach it. I wasn't phrase driven, but the it's time developed as the way I develop my businesses for the best response from clients. I developed it organically. I used to walk out and say, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to begin the ultimate fighting championship, you know, holding that for a long call. Eventually, about 15 years ago in the main event, I narrowed it down to it's time when I announced the main event. And the reason why is because every morning I wake up, I look in the mirror, you know, shaving, otherwise say it's time, meaning I want to have a great day today. And I transferred that into the octagon because the fans watching and in the arena have been there for five to six hours waiting for the main event, enjoying all the other fights. The Warriors have walked in for the main event, and now it's time. It's time for us as fans to witness what's about to happen, and it's time for the fighters who have been training for eight to ten weeks to, to put it all on the line, their blood, sweat, and tears. So to me, that was the ultimate moment. And it just developed like that. And it, honestly, it just took off. And I noticed when I was in Port, uh, Brazil, in front of 20,000 Portuguese-speaking individuals back in the uh, early 2000s when we went there for the first time after we had one event there about 1998. The entire arena said it's time with me exactly when I said it and held it for as long as I said it. That was a very captivating moment for me to realize that, wow, they've accepted this. And now it's happening all over the world in arenas. And it's it's the ultimate compliment. I'm, I'm so heartfelt when I hear this happen while I'm doing my work. And in terms of the biggest show you ever did, which one sticks out in your mind? My friend, I have forgotten more than I can remember. Every time I think it's the greatest show ever, like UFC 100, where if you go on YouTube, you'll see that I did that 360 move where I jumped in the air and spun 360 degrees and roared Brock Lesnar's name, to UFC 200, which was another pinnacle, to the Ultimate Fighter finale with Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin, fought to that crazy fight where 12.5 million people tuned in, which has launched the UFC like a rocket ship. There are so many events that catapult us to another level. And that's the beauty of doing what we do is that it's going to happen again in three months and again in three months. It's, it's very hard to pinpoint one other than to mention many that had that moment. And I know you did some boxing K1 events as well. Are those fitting to your style or are you really just naturally an MMA announcer? No, they're fitting to my style. Um, the problem with boxing is, is that as much as I love it, what I'm announcing and the way I like to move, I'm probably going to knock somebody out with an elbow with one of my whip turns that I have a tendency to do because there's so many people in the ring. The pleasure of announcing in the octagon is that it's me, the fighters, the referee, and maybe one or two commission people, and the cameramen in the ring, not you know managers and handlers and everybody trying to get some camera time supporting their fighter. And K1 actually helped me cut my teeth on my style because that was another event where it's just Again, not a million people in the ring. It's just me, the referee, and the, and the commissioners. And it allowed me to move and, 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 and understand how I like to work. I know that octagon the way a basketball player knows his half court. I know where I'm at, exactly the dimension of where I'm at in the octagon every moment I'm in there. I've been, I know it like the back of my hand after 22 years. And that passion that you bring to the octagon, you mentioned you're a successful businessman. How does that translate into the business world? Well, let's, let's say that the business world translated into my announcing because I've approached 
everything in life I've done work-wise with passion. Um, and it started with, of course, the work in the companies I've worked, you know, I worked and owned over the years, like I said, since I was 19. Um, and I apply that same kind of passion towards everything I do in life. I love being able to enjoy what I do. I don't like to wake up in the morning and say, oh, I got to go to work. I like to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to live my day because it's a lifestyle, you know, and it's, it's great. And I wish this for everybody out there, all your listeners, no matter what you're doing in life, I hope that you have a level of passion for what you do so you can take getting knocked down to the canvas and getting back up. You can take the criticism as well as the successes and the failures and do what it takes to be successful in this life. And I truly believe you have to have passion for everything you do. So it started in business into announcing, not announcing in the business. And when you made your way into the octagon, you still make your way, obviously, into the octagon. Is that passion, does that come easier when you feed off that crowd? It looks like such an energetic environment. It's an amazing experience. I don't rehearse. I don't like that go in with a rehearsal voice. There's a rehearsal voice and there's a live announcer voice. And I feel that um, when I go out there, the energy of the crowd feeds me. I feed off it. And again, I get back to the word organic. My announcing is purely organic. Yes, I have the cards. But if you watch me, I rarely ever look at the cards. I just go out and like a free rolling, you know, whatever, I go out and just let it go. I let it fly. And that's what works for me. That way I'm a kid in the candy store every night I work. And as the saying goes, I love my job. And I heard somewhere that you have a technique where you put one of your fingers into the cards so you don't really have to hold <laughs> it in the palm of your hand. That takes some training and memory. Is that right? Yeah, I cut a pinky hole in because the bottom card I hold, I hold it into my hand with the pinky because sometimes I'm moving and I don't want that card to fly out of my hand, you know, so that's my, it just sustains the card in my hand as I'm doing what I do. I might even make a fist and crunch up the card, get an announcement and then open up my hand and hopefully the cardboard card can open up again and it allows me to do that with that little pinky hole. So as the UFC keeps growing, it keeps adding more events. My understanding is they're starting to put additional announcers on some of the events, uh, presumably to give you some rest. Is that better for your vocal cords, or do you rather keep them busy constantly at work? I'd rather be busy constantly at work. The UFC knows that I would do every show. I've done a show in Jersey, in Atlantic City, and then flown in a private jet with Dana White uh, to get me down to Belo Horizonte, Brazil, where 16 hours later I'm in a new tuxedo in the octagon. Uh, announcing in Brazil, doing two shows in two hemispheres uh, or two countries, you know, in within 24 hours, which was a rock star moment for me. But it's understandable that as a large company like that, they have another announcer that fills in for me on maybe six or seven shows a year because geographically I can't get to a couple shows because they have shows day, you know, one day and then the next day, or they want to arrest me in their minds uh, because maybe I have a show in England and then, you know, I come back and there's a local show, a smaller show, and then I've got to go to maybe Australia the next week. So it's all up to how they design it. And I am totally game for doing every show. As a matter of fact, when I'm not doing a show, like what happened, there was a show in Australia last year in, in November, and uh, they wanted to rest me, but I went to Miami and announced the final uh, NASCAR championship race of the NASCAR season at Homestead Speedway and was on TV at the same time the UFC was happening on the same day. So... I'm always wanting to work, but I work for my chiefs and the powers that be. They direct me and point and shoot. But I'm cool with doing, you know, the 33, 35 events a year I do. And apart from MMA, I understand you're a high-level poker player. When are you going to retire the vocal cords, head into full-time poker? <laughs> I love poker, but I never want to be a full-time poker player and grind it out. I think I would lose, again, my passion for the enjoyment of the game. 
I play every week in some shape or form, but at the same time, uh, I, you know, take time off because my focus is on my job. But when I retire, absolutely. I'll play a lot more poker amongst whatever else I'll do in my life. It's, it's something that is a game I love to do. It gives me a whole sense of competition that I'm a very competitive person and I will be my entire life that fulfills that competitiveness in my mind. And I like making money. <laughs> I know you wrote a book a little while ago. Why did you decide to do that? You know, just like the book says, it's time. I realize it's time. But, you know, as I talk about in the book, what happened is I blew my knee. I severed my ACL announcing the great uh, UFC fighter George St. Pierre in front of 55,000 people in Toronto, Canada, uh, about six, seven years ago, um, which was the biggest show we had ever had. And in the main event, I had a sprained ankle um, badly, so I couldn't stand on my leg two days before the event. I got through the whole event, and then during the main event, George lunged out. I bunny hopped back, and my ankle wobbled, and my knee blew, and I, I basically literally severed my leg, but I did I, my ACL, excuse me, within my leg. But I didn't fall, and I got the announcement done. And when I went back to my hotel room, I'd been thinking about writing my book, and I was really pondering how seriously this injury was going to affect my ability to announce the way I wanted to do. And that was the emphasis that got me starting to write my book. I, I thought, let me put it all down now. I don't know what the next few months holds with the – I had to go through, and um, I just went. Once I started, I couldn't finish. I couldn't. I couldn't put it down. I had to finish the book. And you mentioned you were announcing George St. Pierre. He just came out with a statement saying he's willing to fight again in the future. What's your take on this whole notion that the UFC is losing all its stars? I think the future looks very bright. There's a lot of up and comers coming in, and mega stars like George and Conor McGregor. They come along once every five years, give or take, or less. Um, the Ronda Rousey, this world, everything. But remember, fighters and champions come and go. This is the nature of the sport and the business. Um, there will be other great fighters coming along, and we'll enjoy the memories and and seeing the veteran fighters like Chuck Liddell and George St. Pierre as we see them. But, you know, the fight game is a short-lived career. Some people can extend it. Others, you know, go for all they can in the time they can. It can't go on forever, so this is a natural transition an evolutionary process of the fight game that will always take place. But there will be other megastars coming along, and there are other megastars in process right now. Believe me and trust me on that. And rumors are that Dana White's looking at starting a boxing promotion or a boxing element of the UFC promotion. You know a bit about boxing. What's your take on that? Uh, you know, Dana's really a great promoter. And considering the, how the Mayweather-Conor McGregor fight went and you know, there's other fights to make. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll see somebody like Triple G in the octagon in the future in a mega fight that would be a tremendously huge payday. Uh, excuse me, a uh, pay-per-view day um, for both and everybody involved. Uh, Mayweather talks about it. I mean, he better learn how to sprawl and check a kick and defend a takedown. But, you know, this could be the future where we have a couple of mega fights like that. Aside from that happening in the octagon, Dana sees an avenue to promote boxing events. I think it's a great thing. It won't interfere with the UFC, and it just expands the Zupa UFC brand. So if there's Zupa boxing, um, I look forward to it, and hopefully we'll be announcing uh, the event. And just for the record, Mayweather's never coming into the UFC. You agree? Well, <laughs> it's a big payday if he does, that's for sure. But um, like I said, he better train because that could be a very quick fight. It's not going to be nine and a half rounds of boxing. It's going to be the five-round fight, and you know, MMA fighters come in to finish. There's no room to play with a fighter in the octagon. You're in there, and it's a true, true fight. It's not a boxing match. It is a fight. No question. Well, it seems if you don't start out with wrestling and you try to make that transition from boxing, it may be a bit tougher with the leg kicks, elbows, things of that nature. 
Not a bit tougher, my friend. Tremendously tougher. It's like Roy Jones Jr. was watching K1 with me one time, was commentating, and he saw the leg kicks have. They said, Roy, you want to do that? He looked at me, shook his head, and said, no way. So you got to have a special want to do that and step in the octagon, uh, but you got to train. I'd say just as long as he trains for it, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Bruce, it's been so great of you to join us. Thanks so much for taking the time. Where can people go to find out more about you, how they can get in touch with you? Uh, please go to Bruce. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Please go to BruceBuffer.com. And also, if I may, I offer something there for the UFC and fight fans. Um, I've been paid, you know, ridiculous amounts of money to do announcements with people, and that's all fine and dandy, but I'm about giving back. So I have a special there for $99. You can uh, PayPal through and fill out a form, and my office will send you back the audio that you ordered, or for a little more, you can have it on video of me announcing you like, a champion in the cage and the thank you notes we get for this along with other things I do such as weddings and birthdays and such um, really is makes me feel great and we give um, partial funds to children military and animal charities uh, from these so just go to brucebuffer.com and you can find out events there if you have a corporation or a private event you want a special video or audio for um, I do a lot of work for attorneys. I do a lot of work for real estate people. It's, it's amazing the calls come through, even birth of babies. Um, just check it out, and that's something I offer back to the fans. Bruce, once again, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview, and I appreciate it very, very much. And that's our interview with Bruce Buffer. I hope you had a good time. Thanks so much for listening. My name's Dmitry Shaknovich. If you want to learn more about me, please visit www.dshacklaw.com and this is the Fight Lawyer Podcast. Till next time, folks.